Father, the the song we just sang of of Christ who died for us, and we know that he has given us a new purpose. He has given us um, new eyes to see the world in which we live. He's given us eyes of faith, and so now we look at relationships differently. We look at the law differently. We look at um, our value system differently. We look at the way we exercise faith differently. And so, Father, as we look at this passage in James, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, hearts to receive, and uh, the willingness to go forth in the things that you have called us to. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in a, in a news cycle that's um, dominated by images of, of, of hatred and violence, it's made me wonder, where do we see love? Where do we see faith? Or are these hidden things? Can a Christian say they are loving and they have faith and yet not exhibit those things outwardly? Uh, I admit I love the feel-good commercials. And um, during the Super Bowl uh, this year, I thought the best ad came from New York Life. And um, let me show that to you now. The ancient Greeks had four words for love. The first is philia. Philia is affection that grows from friendship. Next, there's storge, the kind you have for a grandparent or a brother. Third, there's eros, the uncontrollable urge to say, I love you. The fourth kind of love is different. It's the most admirable. It's called agape. Love as an action. It takes courage, sacrifice, strength. For 175 years, we've been helping people act on their love so they can look back or look ahead and say, we got it right. We did good. As I watched that, I was waiting to see who had put that ad on because I thought it was so powerful, the imagery. You see, love is something that is demonstrated. Love is something that is seen and felt and heard. And the same can be said of faith, though I don't think we're going to find a Super Bowl ad about faith but when Jesus sees, his, sees the friends that are lowering their friend down to be healed by Jesus, when they cut a hole in the roof, the Bible says when Jesus saw their faith, he told him his sins were forgiven. So this morning, as we continue our brief series in this epistle of James, we're looking at love, faith, and works. Last week, we had a look at deception, that ever since uh, the Garden of Eden, deception has reigned in the heart of man. And James has warned us about being deceived. The, 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 the self-deception that says people, uh, uh, not to be people who read the word of God and then go on and do the opposite but rather let it be your new master. 
Let God transform you through his word as daily we are putting off the old self and being renewed by the spirit, putting on the new man, growing in maturity and understanding, growing in Christ likeness, growing in the knowledge and wisdom that comes from God. And so as we turn to chapter two, we see James is showing us the outworking of that growth in two ways. And my two points are the signs of love and the signs of faith. It's like Jesus going to the fig tree and he's seeing a whole lot of leaves and he's wondering where is the fruit? And James comes to us as if we were fig trees to ask if there are leaves or if there's fruit. The first thing uh, he looks at is the way that we treat others. Verse one, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Do not judge the externals. Why? James is writing to believers who need to be demonstrating a love and a faith that points people to Christ. Not just calling us to be nice. Not just calling us to be friendly people. It's much, much deeper than that. It's not a game of who has the friendliest church. It's about how we can help people see Christ more clearly. He illustrates this using rich and poor, which he's already used in chapter 1 as well. In verses 2 to 4, a wealthy person comes in and, and you say, oh, well, you sit here in this great seat. And a poor person comes in and you say, oh, you know, if you wouldn't mind, could you stay at the back? And James says... This emerges from inside of you. It has nothing to do with the Spirit of God or the grace of God because we are not to see people with just our eyes, but we are to see people as God sees people. We know God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't look at the external. Think of the anointing of David. You know, is there another son? No, that's pretty much all of them. Well, there's the one in the field, but it can't be him. He doesn't look at the externals. So it doesn't matter how pretty or cute you are. God looks at the heart. It doesn't matter how unattractive or plain you may look. God looks at the heart. And that's so refreshing in this hyper-visual culture that we live in. And James calls this discrimination or judgmentalism because here's the reality. In my old nature, in my default broken nature, I gravitate towards easy people. I like to be around the nice people, the kind people. But under the influence of God's spirit, under the influence of God's word, I will remember to serve anyone. That's how it should be for us. Did Jesus spend time with the poor and the unattractive and the weak? Yes. Did Jesus come to me, the poor, the unattractive, the weak? Yes. 
Does his love make a difference when his love enters our hearts? Yes. Therefore, we need his help in word and spirit as we interact with all types of people that we come across. Because if you think about it, we need help to speak truth to the impressive. Let's flesh James's example out uh, just a bit. We are likely to give that good seat to the impressive people. But we are also likely to not want to say anything uh, to the impressive people that we think may upset or offend them. And so we need courage to say what needs to be said when we speak and interact with the celebrity, with the impressive person. And if they are unattractive or difficult, we need great godliness to go on being faithful. So in verses 5 to 7 of James chapter 2, he's calling on his readers not to show false values. You are not to despise the humble. You are not to bow to the rich. Because, he says, verse 5, God chooses the humble, the poor in spirit, and makes them rich in Christ. And because so many of the rich are dishonoring God and his people, why would you be stupid and, and, and uh, that you would be a church falling to the very people Bowing down to the very people who may be against Christ. Now, I think there needs a little bit of clarification because in the New Testament, rich and poor, it's not just economic, but it talks about spiritual poverty. If, uh, if you followed anything from the 1030 service, doing, Dad's doing the Beatitudes, and the very first rung on that ladder is blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit being those who recognize their spiritual depravity. They recognize their need for Christ. And so throughout the New Testament, that language of poor in spirit, that language of that type of poverty is so abundant and prevalent. <clears throat> I've lost my track here. <laughs> And so if you are catering, if you are kowtowing to the, to the types of people who don't care about Christ, who don't care about the church, don't care about any of those things, what could be worse than you ignoring the people of God and paying special particular attention to the people who don't care, don't want anything to do with you? For 2,000 years, God has raised up Christians who look at the world through gospel lenses and have loved and cared for people that the world despised, the poor, the lepers, the prostitutes, the slaves, and not just helping them out of their temporary difficulties, financial or, or, or whatever their circumstances are, but helping them out of their eternal difficulties as well. And I think it's worth noting that there are ministries to the very wealthy. A lady called the Countess of Huntington was a, a wealthy lady in England. And uh, she was converted and she had a great passion and a desire to see the people from her social circles come to 
the saving knowledge of Christ. And so she would have these elaborate parties at her home and invite all of those friends from that part of her life into her home. And then she would invite uh, uh, Wesley or Whitfield to come and preach the gospel. Now, you could imagine that made her fairly unpopular, but she wanted to make sure that the wealthy heard the message of the gospel. A friend of mine from England whom I met in Australia by the name of Richard Borgonin, he, he worked with um, Lloyd's, uh, Lloyd's of London insurance industry, worked with fabulously wealthy people. And one time he was meeting with uh, one of these wealthy men and, and they were beginning to discuss faith and, and he really felt that burden of, of sharing the gospel with these people these people he was working with. And the conversation started, and so he said, well, let me connect you with uh, a friend of mine. And so they set up this dinner with John Lennox. And so John Lennox and this wealthy man would have this debate back and forth, and, and the wealthy man kept saying, this is wonderful, we need to do this again. So then they did another dinner. And they debated the word, they debated back and forth, back and forth. Uh, great intellectual, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of tennis back and forth. And finally, Richard said, you know what? This isn't working. You're just being entertained by this. You need to understand what the word of God says, because I don't think you've ever actually read the Bible. And so out of that desire to see his wealthy friends come to the saving knowledge of Christ, he set up a, 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 a created a little booklet called uh, the word one-to-one, -one. sat down with his pastor and, and found a way that people could sit down and read the Bible together, a, a believer and an unbeliever, uh, a believer and a new believer, so that the, that person could actually bec become steeped in what the word of God actually says. I think sometimes we forget that. We forget to take people to the word. We just want to have conversations about uh, different ethical issues, and we forget to take people to the word of God. And so here's another ministry that came out of that because he wanted to see his lost wealthy friends come to that knowledge of Christ. James goes on in verses eight to 11. He's challenging believers who want to pick and choose. And it's not just, it's not picking and choosing who to be nice to, but it's the picking and the choosing of the law. Look at verse 11. Imagine you've committed adultery. Great. Are you committing murder? Presumably, James means uh, by not loving or, or hating certain people. This idea of keeping all the law that James is talking about, he, he wants disciples uh, to keep as much as they can. The Apostle Paul had a, a great deal to talk about keeping all the law back in Galatians chapter 3. He was explaining that if you think you can be saved by keeping the law, then keep it all. Because if you think you can be saved by keeping the law, then you had better keep it all. Because if you don't keep it all, then you will never make it. But here, James is not speaking of keeping all of the law to be saved. He's talking about keeping all the law because you are a disciple. You are a saved person. It's what Seth was talking about when he introduced the song. He's talking about shallow Christianity that says you can pick and choose which laws you abide by and then throw out the rest. James says that is not only ridiculous, it is false. You have to surrender to everything that God calls on. 
and you don't get to choose your areas. This is a big issue for consumer Christianity. James is writing this because some of the readers are are, are arguing against this idea of total discipleship. Verse 18, some were saying, you have faith, I have works. You have works, I have faith. James says you cannot have one without the other. It's not a pick and choose option. He's not saying you are only accepted by God if you keep all the law. What he's saying is because you, because you have been accepted by God and you have been a disciple of God, you have to seek to be serious. We all have things that are not our issue, that we don't struggle in. But just the same, we all have an issue that we do struggle in. I had a friend that told me once that he doesn't really struggle with any particular area of his life and that everything's pretty good. I wanted to tell him, I think you have an issue with lying uh, and being deceived because it's silly and it's really immature to think that way. You may not struggle with lust, but you may struggle with anger. You may not struggle with gossip, but you struggle with alcohol. We can be thankful for the areas in our life that that God has protected us that we, we, we don't have great struggle in. But there are areas of our life that are a battlefield, and we want to surrender those and say, Lord, I want to be a complete disciple, not a half hearted one. Now look at verse 12. This is the law of Christ. This is the law that brings freedom. This essentially boils down to you you can either view the law as restrictive and burdensome, a bondage, or you can see it as it is, true freedom. Freedom. If you see it as restrictive, you will constantly be searching for freedom and instead find bondage. But the truth is, we are created in the image of God. The law is in the image of God. And if you bring those two together, that is the truly free person, the person who they were created to be. And we have this total misunderstanding of what freedom is. And I think sometimes I even consider the freedom when we sing about it in in worship songs. And I think of freedom like American freedom. I'm free to, you know, do what I want. That's not what the gospel talks about. We're free not to sin. We are free in Christ in that uh, there is great liberty, but we are still we still obey the law because the law is what gives freedom. It sounds inverse, right? And the truth is we fail over and over and over again. And that is why it's good that James goes on to talk about mercy and judgment. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Two weeks ago at 1030, we heard about how the merciful are those who receive mercy. In Matthew chapter 18, there is a servant who owes uh, the master this massive, unpayable debt. And the master forgives that debt to the servant. 
But then the servant finds someone who owes him essentially a handful of dollars and he throttles this person for the money. And the master finds out and he throws the servant in prison. And the Bible says, Christ says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive, if you do not show mercy. It's not our showing mercy that earns us salvation. Rather, they are the evidence of the life of the person who has found salvation. The life of the person who has been forgiven an, an enormous, unpayable debt. And so let me ask you a question before we move on. Are you a merciful person? Would that be your reputation with friends, family, co-workers, colleagues? Are you a merciful person? Finally, and more quickly... The signs of faith. Probably the most famous part of the letter where James talks about faith and works. It's also given people quite a bit of heartburn. If you look at verse 24, James writes, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Uh, it's why uh, early in Martin Luther's life, he said that the epistle of James was as weighty as straw. That, it, it, uh, uh, that is because Luther was fighting, risking his own life against the justification by works. And he thought that's along the lines of what James was saying. Luther, of course, was steeped in Paul's writings of justification by faith. And so it's important to see how the two, Paul and James, relate. And so we're going to run through these quickly. Romans 3, Paul says, A person is justified by faith and not by works of the law. James says... 224, as we just read, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. How do we reconcile these? Because they are not contradictory. Paul is talking about justification being declared by God to you. Put your faith in Christ, justified. You stand covered by Christ. You have been atoned for. James is talking about justification demonstrated. How to be a disciple. How to show your faith is alive. Paul is describing the cause of salvation, faith. James is describing the consequence of salvation, fruit. Paul is dealing with the new birth of a Christian. James is dealing with the growth of a Christian. Paul is talking to the lost, how to be found. James is talking to the found, how to be serious. What do you do with the person who comes to church when they feel like it? Uh, their attendance is sporadic. They come in and they expect to be treated like they are part of the flock. There is no fruit in their life that can be seen. There's no desire to want to be with believers. There's no growing in the word. It's disheartening as a minister. And it's disheartening as a member to watch someone you thought was part of the body just simply lose interest. Verses 18 and 19. 
Someone says, you have faith, I have works. We talked about this. You can have one or the other. And James says, no, you cannot have one. You have to have both. You have to have faith and deeds. You can't just have faith. You have to have some behavior that flows from that faith. Otherwise, we may start thinking that there was no faith, that it was never real, that it was never genuine. John Wesley used to call nominal Christians Christians with the faith of the devil. And James says in verse 19, at least the demons shudder. I think we could all do with some shuddering, a shaking awake out of a stupor of just who exactly God is. Well, then James closes with two characters, Abraham and Rahab. Very different, male, female, one's a patriarch, one's a prostitute. But they both had this in common, their faith had works. Abraham demonstrates his faith in the extreme. He took his son Isaac and was ready to offer him in obedience to God's word, faith to the max. Rahab demonstrated faith uh, by trusting in Yahweh. She she protected those Israelite spies in Jericho, risking being found, risking her life. Her faith, her new faith, had evidence. And James finishes the chapter by saying, just as a body needs breath, so the faith needs deeds. Martin Luther says, faith is a living, busy, active thing. It is impossible for it not to be doing good. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done it and constantly does it. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, yet does not know what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. Do you see the the sequence? Faith, faithfulness. And this is what, and this is the God whom we serve. He showed his love by sending his son to a cross. That is why we are transformed people. And this is the people he creates, people who show the change. And so in a world that <clears throat> is marked by hatred and violence and, and, and the rest of the world looks to us and everything looks like it's completely falling apart, it's chaotic, let us be people who are marked, who demonstrate, who show love and faith, not just to our brothers and sisters, but to the all that we come across, that people would recognize that love and that faith. Let's pray. Father, I admit this is um, one of the more challenging of scriptures because I love doctrine. I love um, reading the works of Paul and, and, and things that relate to the mind And yet, that's not where it stops. That's where it starts. 
where it continues on is what James has written for us, which is it becomes real. It becomes action. It becomes something that can be seen, heard, felt. And that's often the, the last thing to go. That's often the last thing that, that's transformed. And we know there are people in this world that have those appearances of, of doing good and doing right, and, but they haven't started in the first place. The poor in spirit, the recognition of a spiritual depravity, the recognition of a good God who has loved us and has made one way available to salvation, and that is through Christ. And so, Father, we pray for those who are lost, who are doing good works and think they will be saved by their works. We pray for a spiritual reformation, that they would see the love of Christ, that they would understand their standing before you, confess and repent, and then their new works have new meaning. And for those of us who know the truth, who, who have uh, the scriptures written on our hearts, and yet we are struggle with doing the right thing. We struggle with acting out our faith. We, we struggle with acting out in love. Help us to make that connection between head and heart. Help us to make that connection quickly so that we would be accurate reflectors of Christ's glory, that we would be accurate reflectors of Christ himself. Though we are broken, though we are fallen, we're pointing people to Christ. For that is the important thing. We pray this in his name. Amen.